All right, guys, welcome to another episode of Steel Toes and Scoreboards. Jared Atkins alongside my damn good friend, my co-host, Kurt Kelly. Kurt, what's up, man? How's it going, Jared? Oh, man. Got a hell of an episode planned today. I'm excited about this. Me too. 25 pages of research this time. <laughs> All right, guys, Sunday afternoon, a little after 1 o'clock. Uh, did you find your way out here to my mansion in yeah, the I woods? Fi- I finally found it, yeah. Yeah. Out here close to the Ferdinand State Forest. Pretty nice pad, man. I appreciate that, brother. I appreciate that. Uh, so uh, I guess I, I got a format here. I want to go over a couple things first. So first want to recap. Uh, we put out two episodes last week. Yeah, that was fun. That was fun. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the, uh, the Tiger Woods episode seemed to be halfway well-received. I, I haven't got any feedback off of it, but it's got quite a few downloads for us. I mean, not compared to other places but for us there was uh and then the bonus episode where we just decided to do a little bit of everything at two o'clock in the morning freestyle freestyle that's right uh want to go ahead and start off by thank uh thanking and mentioning uh our first unofficial official sponsor uh deer 30 mineral like i said you want to grow a nice healthy rack and you're worried about the supplements and proteins you're giving to the whitetails in your field uh check out deer30mineral.com nice little company based out in madisonsville kentucky they're supposed to be sending me some free samples i haven't oh, got yeah? them in the mail yet food plots already done for this year I, I haven't been in the woods in probably three or four years so but i know people i'd probably use it but uh anyways uh jump forward we are calling an audible today uh, for those of you who might have seen it on our facebook page we were supposed to have our first ever what if special episode uh katie stays in oklahoma city and friday night i texted kurt and i'm like hey we're calling an audible again and he you he hear him laughing uh one thing I want about this podcast is there's so many sports podcasts out there, and when you start small, you kind of blend in with everybody else. There's no nothing that makes you stand out, and one of the things I wanted to do to make us stand out was every month or so, we do an, a What Say You podcast, and with this being our first What If special, or What Say You, uh, I didn't want to fuck it up, and I really wanted it to matter and be good and i got about half the research done and i was still struggling with how to put it all together and whatnot so i had told kurt uh we're just gonna go ahead and put this on the back burner for right now uh i said no worries no worries (laughs) because it was a lot of work with me trying to figure out how we were going to plan this episode and what we were going to do and i just i don't want to fuck this up because it's going to mean so much to me so then kurt goes uh what are we going to talk about? <laughs> so then I was scrambling in the the midnight hours and the early Saturday morning hours to try to find a topic. And uh, I texted Kurt about 6 or 7 o'clock yesterday morning. I'm like, well, I got three options. I go, we could talk about the 2008 Steelers, your Steelers, yeah, yeah. that awesome Super Bowl win against the Arizona Cardinals, that fantastic San Antonio Holmes touchdown yeah. with seconds to go yeah for sure man. <laughs> i said or we could talk about this or that and then i said what if we rank the 10 greatest moments in sports history and kurt basically it was like bingo man yeah, I, I like it yeah so uh <clears throat> that's what we're going to do today we are going to talk about 
the 10 greatest moments in sports history. And this is a big episode, a, a lot of late night cram and research. Kirk just showed up here about 30 minutes ago, and I just told him, like, hey, I literally just finished the notes yeah. like five minutes before you got here. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you got 25 pages of it, man. Yeah, well, I mean, a lot, like a lot of it's talking points, but stuff I want to hit and some of it's quotes. And uh, But this, this is going to be a list, I'm sure, that's going to be f- – filled with some controversy some people are gonna be like why the fuck is this on here some people are gonna be like how could you not have this listed so what i did was i ranked from i don't want to say the worst but from the less greater to the greatest we did 10 through 2 and then we did four honorable mentions five four three two because i don't feel like there should be a number one honorable mention i feel like number one should be four number one so okay uh you know what makes us fans of sports the answer is pretty simple memorable plays the feeling it gives us but mostly the important moments and so that's why we're here today uh and i want to preface this by saying the top 10 greatest moments in sports history we will break down some of them a lot of them and is an in the moment type of thing but some of these could be specific plays i know people would might find issue with that but you get lost in the moment during a play so uh the great thing about this is this is something you can never forget seeing or hearing live on the radio or reading about the next morning or if this was before your time or you know youtube and and uh I want to shout out all the wonderful people I've ripped this research off of through YouTube and uh, the Wall Street Journal, Sports Illustrated, Bleacher Report, ESPN, Google. So, uh, yeah. All right, man. Well, enough of that bullshit. Do you want to you wanna jump into it? I'd say we go right into it. Okay, so here we go. The top 10 greatest moments in sports history, and I begin number 10. February 15th, 1998, Dale Earnhardt wins the Daytona 500. Do you remember that? Yes, I do. I'm trying to think how old I would have been. I was, uh, I would have been like, uh, 10 and a half, something like that. I would have been finishing up fourth grade. I remember that. Uh, I do too. I'd have been, uh, 28, 29. Maybe. That was the 50th anniversary in NASCAR at that point, I think, because yes. I think that was the season they had the 50-year logo embedded on every field. Uh, 20 years that dude tried to win that race. <laughs> it's unreal. 20 years. He, he owned every other racetrack besides Daytona. So Pretty much. Pretty much, yeah. Uh, and he had had some moderate success at Daytona and other races, right. but the 500 was always the unicorn he was chasing. You know, crashes, uh, engine failure. Was restrictor plate? I think it was. It was coming come into play about then, I think. I think I think it did. Yeah. That's a whole episode one day, restrictor plate race, and that's sure. going to take me back to. For sure. Huh? Yeah. Uh, but I don't, I don't know what all to say. I don't know how we're going to go about this episode, but I believe if you're talking greatest moments in sports history, that belongs on there. I mean – 20 years of failure at this particular event left a bad, bad taste in his mouth. Oh, yeah. Uh, what's funny about this was this is February 98, so a few weeks before, John Elway and the Broncos won their first of back-to-back Super Bowls. Yeah. 
And Dale Earnhardt had made the comment that weekend at Daytona, if John Elway can finally win the Super Bowl, then the Intimidator can finally win the Daytona 500. Kind of a laughable. It was like he was making a joke about himself. But uh, from the research I discovered last night going through old blogs and old articles written by NASCAR fans and, and reporters alike, there was something different in the air about Daytona on that particular weekend. Like, I don't remember where he qualified. That was one thing in the midst of all this cramming for an episode change here. I didn't look to see where he qualified in that event at. But everybody was just kind of making like, this is going to be the year the Intimidator breaks it. So, uh, do you know, and I remember hearing this story, so I went back and fact check it. Do you know what Dale Earnhardt claimed was the reason he won the Daytona 500? No. You don't? No. He, through Make-A-Wish, met a six-year-old little girl with spinal bifida. She was combined to a wheelchair, and she gave him a lucky penny. And she said, this penny is going to win you the Daytona 500. That's a great story. I mean. And the son. (laughs) Absolutely. Dale tire glued the penny to the dash of the car. Wow. And. You know the story about the cars that win Daytona, right? For a year, right. they go into the museum. Right. You can't touch them. So he wasn't allowed to get the penny out of the car, and he was pretty adamant about it. he wanted the penny back, but they wouldn't let him touch the car. So uh, Earnhardt said, uh, the little girl gave me the penny and told me, you're going to win the Daytona 500. This is your good luck penny. So I stuck it on the dash, and I won the Daytona 500 from her good luck. Thank God for angels, and I think she is our angel here, is what he had said. Uh, Following his victory at Daytona, he spoke to the media where he mentioned the penny was a big part of it. Uh, The car ended up going into the museum, so he wasn't able to get the penny, which he was pretty upset about that. Well, yeah, I can imagine. So... Let him have the penny. The car actually, yeah, they wouldn't let me have the penny. The car actually now sits in uh, the Richard Childress Racing Museum, and I forget where RCR headquarters is at, but they've got a museum at headquarters. That's unbelievable. That that car sits there today, and uh, I I don't know if the penny is still in the car. You know how? What is it? Twenty three years later, I don't know if it's still in the car. That's a good story. It kind of uh, tells the story of a different. A little different Earnhardt than people would be used to. I mean, he was the intimidator, but he was, he was a pretty, pretty he, had a, he yeah, was a big softy big when it came to yeah, kids. Yeah. So uh, I'm going to give you kind of a breakdown here of the last few laps. And uh, one of these days, we're going to do a lot more audio where we're playing audio clips of these events. But until I can get prepped and set up for that, we're just going to read it. So uh, here we are 200 laps at Daytona, you know. The race restarted on lap 178. I guess I'm assuming there was a caution prior to that. Earnhardt was in the lead. As the laps ticked down, he remained out front. Uh, Tension was mounting over this because Dale's been, you know, Dale's been in this position before. Uh, Mike Joy, who was one of the broadcasters for CBS, had commented that Earnhardt had been leading the Daytona 500 with 20 to go seven times and with 10 laps to go four times only to have catastrophe strike him so this was a position he'd been in before and everybody's just kind of sweating it like something's gonna go wrong because for dale everything goes wrong uh the penny <laughs> the penny <laughs> um 
on lap 199 Lake Speed, and John Andretti driving for uh, Richard Petty Enterprises yeah. back oh. then, number 43. The Cheer- Cheerios? No, it was no, the, it's, still the it's STP, STP car. Yeah, what? That's right. Uh, anyways, on lap 199, Speed and Andretti crashed. I remember that. That brought out the third caution of the race. Uh, Earnhardt has to get back to the start-finish line to maintain his lead for the ensuing caution period, which would last one lap and in the race. Uh, about that time, he's coming around lap traffic. Uh, God, I wish I could. I don't remember who the car was, and I didn't jot it down. I watched the clip last night on YouTube. And I already forgot who they said, just to take myself back to being a 10-year-old kid again. Uh, anyways, Bobby Labonte tries to go low. Dale goes high and uses the uh, the lap car as a pin or as a pick. So, you know, you, you could just see. You don't have to understand shit about racing to know Bobby Labonte and that number 18 interstate battery is Pontiac's just cussing, cussing, oh, cussing know. Earnhardt. Because he sets the pick. Uh, it was Rick Mast. That's who it was. I got it right here in my notes. Apparently, I wrote it down last night. Rick Mast. Uh, all Earnhardt had to do was drive one lap, which to make it. Uh, Try to see it here. Chocolate Myers. Hell of a name, by the way. Chocolate Myers. You're like, what are you saying? Chocolate Myers was Dale Earnhardt's gas man, and he is now the curator for the Richard Childress Racing Museum, and he's also a radio personality on Sirius XM NASCAR Radio. He says, you've got tears in your eyes. You don't want to say anything. You don't want to jinx anything. What if something breaks? What if the engine quits again? What if we have to listen to Dale bitch and cry for a whole nother year again? Uh, Mike Joy famously called it the longest receiving line in history of celebrations after Earnhardt crossed the finish line and started going down pit road where people were waiting, 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 waiting with a hand out there for a high five. Uh, Larry McReynolds, our heart's crew chief, good friend, wanted him to do the Alan Kowicki victory lap, you know, the backwards right. around the track. Earnhardt had better ideas, which was – this was funny. <clears throat> if you remember how he celebrated – he burnouts and he tore up the infield, tore up that beautiful Daytona 50-year anniversary grass. Uh, funny note, during speed weeks at Daytona, officials had asked the drivers not to tear up the infield grass. They specifically said no burnouts in the grass. Well, I guess Bill France Sr., the owner, or Bill France Jr., whatever, got on the radio and Earnhardt said, do I have permission to fuck up the grass? <laughs> he said, permission granted, you've earned it. And then Mike Joy, you know, we're kind of bouncing around here. We skipped a little ahead. Now we're coming back. But, you know, Mike Joy with the famous call, and I watched it three times last night just to, to, to let it sink in. <laughs> 20 years of trying, 20 years of frustration. Dale Earnhardt will come to the caution flag to win the Daytona 500. Finally, finally. So... Yeah, hit a little applause for the Intimidator here. Was never a Dale guy, but yeah, me neither. But I mean, it, you, you got to respect him, his contributions. Uh, <clears throat> when Dale got out of the car, started his interview, he would he claimed that he had tears in his eyes, and then he realized I'm the Intimidator, and he said, "Oh, my eyes just watered a little bit. I don't cry." He said, 
The Daytona 500 is ours, boys. We've won it. We've won it. We've won it. Uh, And unfortunately, three years later at the same track, on the last lap, turn four, crash into the wall, Dale Earnhardt would lose his life in a tragic accident. Surreal. Just shocked NASCAR. Shocked the world. Uh, All in all, Dale Earnhardt would go on to finish his career when he passed with 76 career victories, four of them being Winston, 500 wins, uh, seven championships, tying Richard Petty. That's pretty cool. And, of course, the most important of all, some would argue, the elusive unicorn, the 1998 Daytona 500. So, Wow. Yeah, wow. What a resume, right? Yeah, it's a great moment in sports history. Uh, I don't really know what else to say. And honestly, if you're honoring Dale Earnhardt, you should probably keep it the way he kept it. He wasn't a man that liked to do a whole lot of talking. He didn't like articles being read about him, interviews being given. He didn't care if you sing his praises. He didn't want to focus on it. So, All right. In honor of a man who wasn't my driver, but in honor of the man, we should uh, move on. Yes. Good, good, good first one. Good, yeah, good story behind that on that little girl. That was, yeah, yeah. That was really cool. The lucky penny. Yeah, I can't believe they didn't give it to him. <laughs> not for a year. I don't know if he ever I mean, got it back or not. I don't know if he got it back in 99, but for a year, he wouldn't get the penny out of the car. I mean, that's kind of. <laughs> <laughs> well, NASCAR's pretty particular. It's, you know, it's. The Daytona 500 is their be-all, end-all. Yeah, it's the WrestleMania. Dale Earnhardt. I, <sighs> putting asses in the seat. There, you love that, don't you? Yes, asses do. in the seat. I mean, come on, man. It's just a little penny. The little girl's got spina bifida. <laughs> For Christ's sakes. All right, I'm, I'm over it. Right, let's move on. Okay. <clears throat> Some might argue this don't belong on the list. Some might argue it belongs higher. I put it in the top 10 for a simple fact, and I'm going to say this to you. 135 and 0. What could 135 0 mean? Uh, All right, find out. In March 16th of 2018, history was made in the March Madness tournament. For the first time ever, a 16 seed took down a one seed. Never happened. At the when this game tipped off. University of Maryland, Baltimore College, the Golden Retrievers, defeated the Virginia Cavaliers. When this game tipped off, one seeds were 135-0 against 16 seeds. They always said it would never happen. It would never, ever, ever happen. And not only did it happen, not only did the number one seed, who, by the way, that season, uh, Virginia was the number one overall, overall seed. Yes. Yeah, so yeah. they weren't just a one. They were the, they were the top dog of the tournament. Not only did they lose to a 16 seed, they got blown out. They lost by 20 points. <laughs> that uh, Malcolm Brogdon, uh, who else on that team? Oh, gosh. Don't ask me for a whole lot of that because I didn't write down a whole lot of names. Uh, what I've got in my notes here, uh, we all figured this game would, would be 136-0 when it was over. History was made on this day. They took down the number one overall seed. And it wasn't some buzzer beater where UVA could say, damn, we almost had them. Guess they just played a little better than we did. No, this was a fucking blowout as they lost by 20 points. They lost 54 to 74. To show you how impressive this was and how this made things, the Nielsen ratings for this game came out a few days later, and it equaled a 
2.0 share, which equates to basically 4 million people watched the number one overall scene get their ass beat in prime time. Uh, fun fact about this, Virginia was a 20 and a half point favorite in Vegas heading into this thing. They ended up getting beat by 20. Yeah, they were 20 and a half point favorite. Uh, what people might not remember, and honestly, I mean, it's been three years and I got a good sports memory, but we forget shit. I didn't remember this. That game was tied at 21 at halftime. So it was within reach. It was within reach for Virginia. And in the second half, they came out and UMBC outpaced them 53 to 33. Uh, another little fun fact I dug up since you like me digging up these oh, yeah. little things. Baltimore <clears throat> UMBC's head coach Ryan Odom. He was a University of Virginia fan growing up. His father, Dave Odom, was actually a UVA assistant head coach or assistant coach back in the day. And then, you know, on the other side of things, Virginia's head coach, Tony Bennett. We know about his pedigree. Yeah. Uh Tony Bennett is uh, a lot like Sean Miller for Arizona. They're, they're, they're no one, not so much for offense, but for their defense. defense yes. uh, Virginia was 31-2, and two, and nobody scored much on the Cavaliers that season. Uh, their opponents averaged barely 53 points a game. <laughs> Excuse me. UMBC was 24-10, and 10, just a happy-go-lucky bunch of as some people call them, clueless hopefuls going into a tournament. They won the American East in the final seconds, but they were the 16th seed for a reason. Their 2017-2018 season wasn't anything that anybody in college hoops was talking about outside of their campus. No, I'd never heard of it. Yeah. So, I'm going to read a little something here to you about this game. This, uh, I I ripped uh, a couple couple lines here off of uh i think it was cbs sports how anything is possible when the score starts oh oh there is no more fertile ground for sudden drama in all of sports than march madness and the ncaa tournament and most of all how history can be such a fickle two-faced thing look one direction you see pure joy the other a team getting in its collective hearts ripped out kyle guy the star for virginia quoted a saying for the first time in history for everything is always hard and for whoever's on the wrong side of it <clears throat> in a way it's strange that one of the greatest moments in the nc tournament history can be by a 20 point result there is no dramatic title winning dunk like north carolina state over houston no epic fight to the finish like villanova over georgetown no chris jenkins three-pointer like villanova over north carolina in 2016 this was a relentless throttling Tied 21-21 at halftime, but a 53-33 mashing after that. UMBC earned their rightful place in sports history. They had more trouble playing Vermont in their tournament win-in championship game than they did by playing the number one overall seed in the tournament. Total collapse. What happened? Yeah, pretty much. Um, But there's a redemption for this. uh, 2019... uh, I filled out my March Madness bracket in 2019, and uh, I had Virginia going out in the Final Four, so I, I put them in the Final Four. Funny thing, a lot of guys turned their brackets in. I'd seen a lot of Virginia in the championship game, and I'm just thinking, 
they're not going to make it back. They're the laughing stock, and everybody's like, oh, no, they're pissed off. And I'll freely admit, I fucked up on that one calling college basketball there. Uh, they would go on to win the following year, but that doesn't erase the fact that, I mean, we get to crack jokes about them like that. <laughs> Everybody loves a Cinderella story. We talked about that in one of our first episodes. I don't remember what we were talking about, but we said everybody loves a Cinderella story in sports. Oh, yeah. For and sure. you, you can't get more than that than a 16 seed yeah. taking down a one seed yeah. when it's never fucking happened before. That's pretty crazy. <laughs> so, uh, anyways, let's see if I got a, if I got any more notes Another about this. great moment in sports history. It, it was. I'm trying to look at all my notes. You know, it's funny. I... I usually we end up with 20 or 30 pages of notes and I bet you I don't end up reading half of them but I got them listed in the laptop as I scroll so it's like if I want to mention it uh like here I basically have a whole rundown of the game possession by possession and I don't want to read all that just <laughs> I mean it, it it's back and forth in the first half I'll say start from the second half we know it was 21 21 at half I mean You want me to give a little rundown? Yeah, give a little rundown. There. Okay. Okay, hey, that's that's why I'm glad you're here because I need a co-anchor. So coming out of halftime, the Retrievers went on an early 7-2 to run before Virginia used their first of three remaining timeouts of the game to just kind of take a step back and a break. During the timeout, a 6-2 and run before the first TV timeout of the half gave the Retrievers an 11-point lead. Another UMBC run of 10-4 to would force the Cavaliers to use their second timeout where Tony Bennett can be seen on the sideline very, very, I won't say angry, but animated. Try, animated. That's the word I was looking for. Trying to, like, what the hell are you guys doing out there? <laughs> this is a 16th seeded team. So then, after that, things calmed down. Virginia goes on an 11-7 and run, which allowed them to bring it to within 12. So they're already behind. But they're able to bring it to within 12 before UMBC was forced to use their timeout. Both teams would stall as only eight combined points were scored by both teams before the Retriever's second timeout. A 5-0 and run by UMBC within a minute forced Virginia to use their final timeout. Wow. So, psychologically, uh-huh. they're already... I mean, were they draining threes? Or? There's a lot of three. I watched I, I, highlights. I, I there, was some, there was some threes. I wondered about that. Uh, so, despite the break, fouls by Virginia contributed to UMBC making four free throws and scoring a layup on a missed free throw, which allowed the lead to extend to 19 points. The final two minutes would see the Retrievers extend their lead by another point to finish the game 74-54. to The Cavalier, who led the NCAA during the season in scoring defense at 53.4 points per game, were outscored 53-33, to which we've mentioned twice now in the final 20 minutes. The 20-point loss was the largest deficit the Cavaliers suffered their entire season, and it was the only time they allowed at least 70 points. UMBC's Jarius Lyles, who scored 28 points while battling through cramps late in the second half, was named the game's MVP. Lyles was responsible for a lot of those threes that I seen going up last night. Uh, At the end of the game, Jim Nance famous sports anchor we've we've heard him at the masters we've heard him peyton winning the colt super bowl we've heard him through so many calls with a pretty memorable call that's most likely going to anchor this moment in the annals of sports history i do believe shocking all in college basketball umbc makes history tonight in charlotte (laughs) and i mean he didn't even need to elaborate anymore that's that's what it was 
So cool. Cool. Yeah, it's cool. So so far we're thirty minutes in. We've covered two. Yeah. We're doing all right. We're doing all right. I mean this this I don't know if Tiger's episode was two and a half hours. I'm sure, I'm sure everybody out there is like oh I can think of more memorable. Oh yeah. Well hey and, and it's Everybody out there, when they hear this, they're probably going to be, and I, I would love it. I'm almost doing this episode just kind of as a pushback to you guys to get you guys to give us some fucking feedback and challenge us on yeah. some stuff, because this episode is going to be full of controversy. There's going to be things on this list where you're like, what the fuck? Why is that on there? There's going to be things where you guys are driving down the road, listening in the car and be like, why did these idiots not put this in there? Sports is opinionated. It's yes. the great. That's why we love debating it. So... I don't really want to say any more about that. I think move on in the next number eight because we're ranking these from ten to eight. The completion of the perfect season, the seventy-two Miami Dolphins. <laughs> <laughs> now I wasn't alive in seventy-two. I wasn't born until eighty-seven. I'd have been one year old. But you know a lot more about some of that history than I do. So it's like crack the top on my diet mountain dew here this is my liquid crack wait a obviously they had a great defense obviously they were called the no-name defense which yeah, is funny yeah. uh well let's start off here i've got a rundown of their entire season uh this is what i have in my notes and as i've said before and kurt knows i don't like to read my notes because i feel like it i just should talk it but with what i have wrote here i want to read this so it says number eight the 72 miami dolphins the completion of the perfect season this is another one of those what can i say things they're the only team in nfl history to finish a season unbeaten and untied fuck you to the 2007 new england patriots because you might have finished the regular season 16 and 0 but coughlin super bowl coughlin steve spagnolia eli that giant's Pass rush, shut, shut you down. down. Eighteen and one. You're not perfect. That's right. Okay, I just had to get that off my chest. Yes, yes. You suck. suck. Anyways, they would go on to capture a Super Bowl victory that made them champions. The '72 Dolphins broke several NFL records. While they were 17 and 0 while leading the league in offense and defense, and were the first team to have two 1,000-yard rushers in the same backfield, which I'm pretty sure one of those was Larry Zonka. Oh, yeah, Larry Zonka. Yeah. I don't remember who the other one was because I didn't, I didn't look it up, but one of them is Zonka for sure. That's pretty cool. I did not know they had another 1,000-yard rusher there. I ripped that stat about 2,000-yard rushers right off the Dolphins' website, so I say they're pretty proud of history. When I research for these episodes, I go everywhere all over the interwebs, man. That's a good thing, though. Anyways, uh, they also secured the team rushing record by averaging more than 200 yards per game on ground for the entire fucking season, while the defense only allowed 171 points. Number one in offense, number one in defense, and still perfect. Pretty impressive. So here's a rundown of their entire season. I'm going to adjust my mic, and I'm going to move back a little bit. So, April 17th of 72 at Kansas City, they won 20-10. to 10. September 24th, 1972, Houston at home, 34-13. to 13. October 1st, 72, at Minnesota, 16-14. to 14. October 8th, 72, at the New York Jets, 
Would have been Namath, would it not have? Uh, that would have been Namath. So, yeah. so they're at the Meadowlands or Shea, wherever they were playing. Didn't they used to have some football games back in Shea Stadium? Yes, yeah, absolutely. Regardless of where they're playing, they're playing at the Jets. They they stump, didn't really stomp them out. Twenty seven to seventeen, though they beat them by ten. The next week, October fifteenth, they played San Diego at home. Would that have been Dan Fouts in seventy two, uh, or would Dan came along a little? I think Dan came along a little long, little, little late, after, a little after that. I think. I love Dan Fouts. By I the way, too. God, I, I love yeah. Dan Fouts. Kellen Winslow, Eric Coriel, Eric Coriel, yeah. Anyways, we're getting off track. So they they play San Diego, beat them twenty four to ten. The next week they're at home again with Buffalo, beat them twenty four to twenty three. That one was pretty close. I don't remember anything standing out about a seventy two Buffalo Bills team other than OJ. OJ would have been but, on that team. Yeah. Well, I mean that kind of says it all right there. Your whole offense runs through OJ. Okay, no offense yeah. to anybody. Yeah, no, no kidding. <laughs> yeah. Uh, juice. Baltimore Colts. Johnny Unitas, my Colts. Johnny would have been quarterback in seventy two still. Yeah, they got they stomped them out. They beat them twenty three to nothing. Uh, a week later, November fifth, they go to Buffalo this time after just playing them two weeks prior. They beat them thirty to sixteen. And then the big one here, the big season blowout, November twelfth of seventy two, they get the New England Patriots at home, at home in Miami. 52 to zip. Huh. I wonder if Steve Grogan would have been quarterback in New England. Maybe he comes on later too, maybe. That I don't know. That's another one of those things. I, I need to be start prepared for you to – maybe I need to get this research done a week ahead of time so then I can give you a copy, you ask me these questions, and then I go back and make another copy. I mean, wouldn't be a bad idea. I man. need to buy a printer, a printer and some paper and some ink. Remind me of that later when right we finish. On, right on. Uh, so then the next week, they're at home again, November 19th. Here comes the Jets again, Namath. They beat them 28-24, a little closer. November 27th, so here we are, Thanksgiving week. Uh, they play St. Louis, beat them 31-10. to That might have been the St. Louis cards still it was. before they became, yeah. So December third, seventy two, they're playing in New England. They beat them thirty seven to twenty one. Uh, December tenth, they play the New York Giants, twenty three to ten, beat them, and then they finish the season playing uh, United and the Colts again. To finish out the season, they beat them sixteen and zero. So there's the perfect season. They go into the playoffs. Uh, they beat Cleveland twenty to fourteen. December 24th, Christmas Eve. New Year's Eve, they beat the Pittsburgh Steelers 21 to 17. And then Super Bowl 7, Washington Redskins, January 14th to 73. Uh, Super Bowl 7, they beat them 14 to 7 in front of 85,000 people. Wow. That's a bunch of people. 72. Would that have been Theismann? Was Theismann in there yet, or was that just a little bit before him? I say I've just been one year old. So I, I, I know, I think, but you're like I a think, sponge of sports knowledge. I don't think he was there yet. I, I, th- think, I think you're right. I think I think, he, I, think I was a little bit before him. Yeah. What's funny here is, you know, I like to give you random stats and statistics. That's half of our every podcast episode we do. The 72 
Dolphins season was their seventh season and third in the NFL. The 72 Dolphins are the only NFL team to win the Super Bowl with a perfect season. The undefeated campaign led by head coach Don Shula and notable players Bob Greasy, Oral Morrill, Larry Zonka. Uh, the team remains the only NFL team to complete an entire season undefeated, regular and post. Uh, there's a rumor going around that every time a team that's undefeated loses a game, that the remaining members of the 72 Dolphins team, and I say remaining because I'm under the impression some of them have passed away, and I'm sure they probably have. They get together and they toast a glass of champagne, kind of very cockily because, you know, which is kind of funny. Uh... The 72 season, Greasy's ankle was broken in week five as he was sacked by San Diego's Chargers defensive tackle Ron East. And defensive end, to me, arguably one of the top five greatest defensive ends of all time, one of my favorite players, the man that invented the term sack and made it a statistic they started recording, Deacon Jones. Yeah, yeah, Atlanta Falcon. And maybe, and maybe he was a Ram. He was an Ram. L.A. Ram. Yeah, that's right. He was an L.A. God, Ram. he was a nasty son of a bitch, dude. He, yeah. Oh, you talk about intimidating. Yes, for sure. Uh, I always think the greatest sack master is always Lawrence Taylor. I'd like to yeah. see Lawrence Taylor and Deacon lock up once, get in a pissing contest. Just to, anyways. Uh, he was replaced by Morrill for the rest of the regular season. Greasy then returned as a substitute in the final regular season game against the Baltimore Colts, relieved Morrill for the second half of the AFC Championship game against the Steelers, and started in the Super Bowl. The Dolphins clinched that AFC East title that year in Week 10. On the ground, running back Mercury Morris. Morris. That's the other one. I've heard it, yep. See, you ask me, and then I forget what I put in my notes because you got to understand, I'm cramming, cramming, right, cramming because right, we decide right. 24 hours ahead of time we're changing the episode. Mercury? Mercury Morris. Morris. They became the first teammates to rush for 1,000 yards in a season. Paul Warfield led the receivers, averaging over 20 yards per catch on 29 receptions. The offensive line included future Hall of Fame members Jim Langer, who played every down during the season, wow. Larry Little, and pro bowler Norm Evans. The 72 Dolphins defensive unit was the league's best. It's often referred to as the no-name defense, which we talked about. That was given to them by Cowboys coach Tom Landry in an interview stating that the Dolphins offense offense received much more publicity because they were better players than their defense, which, needless to say, probably pissed them off. Yeah. Linebacker Nick Bunaconti. I I fucking don't know. Never heard of Boone Conti, but Conti, I can't pronounce it. I spell it once. B U O N I C O N T I. I'll just call him Boone Conti. Yeah. Uh, Manny Fernandez was one of their tackles. <clears throat> Dick Anderson and Jake Scott, safeties. Uh, they had nine players on offense and defense selected to the Pro Bowl that year. Uh, this is a fun fact right here. This. I got off the Google machine and then I went to the Dolphins website to kind of see if I could fact check this. Couldn't find nothing. Went to Bleacher Report, found an article that basically stated the same thing. So the cat, the 
<clears throat> Dolphins lost one game in 72. However, it was in Super Bowl six, which was for the 71 season, lost to the Cowboys. This impacted head coach Don Shula so much and pissed him off that he vowed to not only reach the Super Bowl again, but win it. In doing so, he forced the team to watch the film of the loss twice a week while at training camp. <laughs> so twice a week, he made it in the Super Bowl. <laughs> okay. It fucking worked. It, it, it worked. was a it motivator. Yeah, it worked. Sure. Yeah, obviously it worked. I mean, that's crazy, though. Oh, and then here's the last little fun fact I'm going to get to you before I get to probably one of my favorite, our next one, number seven. Uh, so to wrap. Okay, guys, what you're hearing now here is fresh audio. I'm in post production and editing with Audacity, uh, as you're going to hear on the merger when I merged these two clips together. We were running into a bit of technical issues with some with our equipment and uh the episode just didn't finish out the way I wanted to. So what you're gonna hear as soon as I merge these and like I said this is a live clip. I'm talking in between audio recorded today. Um this is real time. This is me right here <clears throat> quote unquote in the studio. Uh the next clip when it merges, it's just going to immediately pick up in mid sentence talking about the number seven greatest moment in sports history. So you're going to feel a bit lost. It, the number seven moment was basically uh, January 1920 when Babe Ruth was sold to the Yankees for $100,000, which is what financed the Broadway play, which began the curse of the great Bambino. So, uh, I don't ever want to hide to you and lie to you guys, so I'm not happy with today's episode the way it turned out. We ran into some recording issues and some post-production problems, and the only way I know about it is to interrupt the first recording and before I merge the second recording and just right now do a live recording. So I fucked up. It's not perfect. Um but the content we covered was too great not to put out there. So here you go. Uh, so keep in mind, like I said, you know, I make mistakes, we fuck up, but I'm always going to tell you. And this audio that's getting ready to come out now that I'm getting ready to merge into is uh, number seven, which is the curse of the great Bambino. So... All right, guys. Hope you like it. So, Babe had been sold to the Yankees to to finance the play. Uh, at that point, the Yankees had been in the league 17 seasons, didn't really have a ballpark of their own, none of that stuff. Uh the Red Sox at the time, though, had won like five World Series championships. They were the hot ticket in the AL. They were the be-all, end-all. And in their mind, they were getting $100,000. The owner was going to finance a play. They weren't worried. And then it led to the Yankees ultimately becoming probably the, the winningest or close to the winningest franchise. 27 World Series championships. Uh, the case of the Bambino, you know. What more can you say? Uh, 86-year drought. You know, Babe was sold in 20. 
They last won a World Series in 1918. They didn't win another one again until 2004 with the four-game sweep of the Cardinals. Uh, yeah. Kind of lost my mojo here. So. Uh, for those of you hearing this, I don't, I'm not going to lie to you. We had some technical difficulties. We ran out of tape, uh, and I caught it. Uh, and when halfway through number seven here, the Babe Ruth part, and then we decided to uh, just play the audio and turn the mics off and record it. And then when it came time to turn the mics back on, we ran into another technical difficulty. <clears throat> so we decided now we're, I'm just going to try to splice these two together in post-production. So I didn't have to tell you that, but I'm telling you this because if it sucks, I want you guys to know why. So... Kind of just lost all my mojo here trying to pick up for the the Babe Ruth thing, and I and I've, I've done lost my damn spot where we were basically before Ruth left Boston. Though the Red Sox had won five of the first fifteen World Series, Ruth pitched for this nineteen sixteen and nineteen eighteen championship teams. He was with the Red Sox for their nineteen fifteen World Series. The manager only used them once as a pinch hitter, and he did not pitch. Uh, the Yankees at that time had not played in any World Series, but in the 84 years after the sell, they played in 39 World Series, winning 26 of them, which 2009 would make number 27. in four World Series and lost each of them in seven games. Numerous attempts to break the curse of the great Bambino after Babe Ruth became a Yankee not only failed, more so many of them failed in a hilarious and almost a theatrical way, which is a play back to the whole thing about... Babe being sold for the money to finance a play. So, uh, there's that damn error message popping up again. It says right there. That's the first time I've ever seen that one. So, we're just going to keep rolling and, uh, I'll let you know later tonight what happens. <laughs> okay. So, this might be an episode that gets lost in the archives. Who knows? But, uh, jumping back into the top 10 greatest moments in sports, uh, this one I was pretty passionate about, number six, and this this got you pretty excited yeah, uh, for for a lot of reasons for American patriotism, for a big middle finger to racism <laughs> and white supremacy and and all this stuff, and that would be Jesse Owens and his 1936 Olympic campaign. Um, Stole the show. Yeah. Uh, you know, maybe this one should be higher on the list. I'm sure some people should argue that it could possibly be lower on the list. There's some people that say it probably doesn't belong on the list. Uh, I think it's fine where it's at, finishing just outside the top five. Uh, this is important for so, so many reasons, and Kurt agrees. On a professional sports level, it's important because of American patriotism and, and what an athlete he was. On a personal human level, uh, basically, a Cliff Notes version before we get into it. Jesse Owens basically told Adolf Hitler and Nazi Germany to go fuck themselves inside of Nazi Germany at the 1936 Olympics in Berlin. And, uh, it was a fuck you to white supremacy, fuck you to your perfect Aryan nations, fuck you evil bastards altogether. Let me show you what a real athlete, a black athlete, can do. Uh, this should be a sports moment we all root for. Yes. Uh, and sadly, there's some people out there who are stuck in their old ways, and they don't want to make this a real sports great moment, and it and it is. Uh, we don't talk a lot of politics here, at, if any, at Steel Toes and Scoreboards, but 
this has got to be done. This is this has got to go in, does it not? Oh, I, yeah, I think so, for sure. So, at the 1936 Olympics in Berlin, Germany, American track and field athlete Jesse Owens dominated the competition. He claimed gold medals in the 100-meter, 200-meter long jump and was a member of the gold-winning American quartet that won the uh, 4-100-meter relay. Why was Owens' performance so historic, though? Uh, well... He was an African-American man, Aryan myth that Hitler and Nazi Germany had. You see, Hitler used the 36 Olympics. At that time, Hitler was in power, Chancellor of Germany, to show the resurgence of Nazi Germany. Uh, Hitler and the Nazi propaganda thought that Aryans were a superior race, and therefore African-Americans were considered far less superior, completely inferior. Uh, Owens proved that school <laughs> thought to be nothing but bullshit basically uh as he um just dominated that that's all you can say he dominated uh fun fact for you and i found this on the google machine and i got this from jesse owens's website jesseowens.com he became the first male african-american athlete to receive a sponsorship when adi dossler the founder of adidas athletics convinced owen to use his shoes Cool. I tried to hit the sound pad. The sound pad's locked up. Uh-oh. So I was trying to hit an applause. So yeah, there you. Go. I don't. This fucking thing, man. Uh, we're not having a good day here at Steel Toes and Scoreboards. We're having technical qual technical issues, and I'm not very happy. But we're just gonna try to roll through it. Hopefully, this episode sees the light of day, bro. Maybe if, if not, fuck it. We'll try it again. We'll, we'll be all right. We'll throw it. Uh, the first day of competition following track victories by white German and some Finlands, Hitler set a precedent that he would not keep, but congratulating the winners personally in his personal box at the stadium. But after two black Americans, Cornelius Johnson and Dave Albritton, won gold and silver in the high jumps, Hitler and his aides left the stadium, and the handshakes and celebrations stopped for the rest of the game. The games would only further go off Hitler's script from there. During a trial in the 100-meter dash, Owens set a world record, if ever so briefly, and it was disallowed because of high winds that day. What? High winds. They wouldn't count it. High winds. Oh, no. Can't let a black man set a record. (laughs) High winds. Set back aside... my notes here and I copy and pasted this directly from Jesse Owens website here so I didn't hand type everything so shout out jesseowens.com Owens led all the way and tied the world record of 10.3 seconds the next day later dubbed Black Tuesday went like this Owens starts the day off by setting a world record in a heat for the 200 meter a little while later he qualifies meter heat tying his own record Then he set off to the finals of the long jump, where after a few rounds of jumps, a German by the name of Luz Long had somehow tied him. On his second and third jumps of the finals, Owens became the first and second person to break the 26-foot barrier. I see I had it there. Yeah. And now the error popped back up again. So, guys, we're going to try to do our best here. I'm not real... uh, I mean, the content's good, and we're talking good, but... All the technical and post-production and production side of this, I'm not having a good day. Kirk can see it in my face. I'm not very fucking happy. So, 
uh, we've we've knocked out, we've banged out several episodes for you with no problems, and uh, I'm just I'm not very pleased. I don't know what's going on with my equipment. We've got several hundred dollars. We have to everything tied up. You'll figure it out. I'll figure it out. I'll have to go through my guide and see what's going on here. I'm just mainly worried about this second part recording, which I never wanted to break the fourth wall, but you know everybody knows now this episode's basically recorded in two different formats, and I'm going to try to splice them together. Uh, uh, they'll forgive us. Yeah, I'm the, just I'm, the I, show must go on. That's the rule in sports, right? Yeah. I mean, 1999, Owen Hart fell 70 feet to his fucking death, and Vince McMahon decided to keep the show going with Owen's blood laying all over the mat. They kept the show going. It's a fucking crime scene. Yeah, Owen died in the ring, and Vince is like, "Well, scrape him off. Let's keep going." I mean, <laughs> I mean, not to be crass, but that's basically. Anyways, show must go on. So, uh, Jesse Owens. Uh, the German that took silver, the white German, in Hitler's Nazi Germany, and the Olympics are in Nazi Germany. The white German took silver. He shook Owens' hand. They embraced to roars of approval from the crowd. Okay. The next day, Owens set about winning the 200-meter dash in routine fashion. Uh, New York Times' Arthur <laughs> this is funny. New York Times author Arthur Daly described Owen's performance and quote, one of the most amazing achievements in the ancient art of foot racing. No one in history has broken even 21 seconds flat for the distance around a turn. And here was this human bullet ripping off 20.7 seconds. By the time Owen received his third gold medal, Hitler had done pissed, been so pissed off. He left the stadium citing inclement weather, much to the delight of the assembled foreign press, while the intimate inclement weather was nothing more than just mere rain clouds. So he's not wanting to see this. This evil, evil son of a bitch. This which just makes it greater. Owens is just like, fuck you, basically. Owens added his fourth medal, leading off the men's 400-meter relay team. He accounted for a third of all American gold medals in the 1936 Olympics. Unfortunately, after beating a fascist and putting an end to Hitler's notions of Aryan athletic supremacy, Owen returned to America to be made feel unworthy, he would later remark in his life. Jesse was quoted as saying, I came back to my native country of America and I couldn't ride in the front of the bus. I had to go to the back. I couldn't live where I wanted. I wasn't invited up to shake hands with Hitler, but I damn sure wasn't invited to the White House to shake hands with the president of this country either. Wow. So, 36 would have been uh, FDR, I'm pretty sure, right? Or somewhere about that? Yeah. However, almost 40 years later, wrongs were righted. Uh, In 76, 40 years after his triumph, President Gerald Ford amended the mistakes of the six immediate predecessors by awarding Owens the Presidential Medal of Freedom. Jesse is known for so many memorable quotes about sports in his life. And my notes say, Google some and throw these quotes at Kurt. Unfortunately, I didn't Google those, so I didn't uh, I didn't do my own notes here. So, uh, you know, whatever. You can just you can just see it in my face, can't yeah, you? I'm yeah. just, you know, I'm a stickler for things running smooth and the fact that we're having trouble. We're recording, though. I mean, at least we can yeah. hear ourselves. It's, it's recording. I'm just, I'm not very happy. So, uh no worries oh man well it's just you know the fact that i had good research on the kd episode and 
I was afraid of screwing it up because I wasn't sure how to do our research for that episode. So we make an audible at the 11th hour. Um, I can't even use the fucking sound pad to take a break. So we're just going to do a, a live temporary read. So we're going to plug another unofficial official sponsor. Uh, and just I'm just going to try to do a, a live ad read. I don't have the phone numbers in front of me right now like I have with the previous episode. But uh, Glary Guitars, uh, you, since you're here at my house for once, you checked out my new Glary that I bought in January. Yes, yes. Uh, sounds pretty good. A $70 guitar. <clears throat> and it doesn't. It looks more like a two or $300 guitar. Sounds, sounds like one, too. Sounds good, really. Uh, nice acoustics. Check out glarymusic.com. That's G-L-A-R-R-Y, glarymusic.com. Look them up on Facebook. Uh, I had the phone number in the previous episode. I don't have it now. I'm just totally out of my rhythm here with everything going on. Uh, if you're on a budget and you really want a great sounding acoustic, uh, but you don't even have the the 100 or two or $300 to get something like a a cheap Fender or Yamaha and the Fender is still one of the best there is. Uh, but check out glary music. I got two acoustics about one for me and one for my friend Zach in January, uh, spent 75 on mine. I think he spent 90 on his. So, uh, check them out. That's a good deal. That's a good deal. So moving on, there's no one. Okay. Uh, now we're in the top five. So man, I'm so pissed too. Cause we lost an hour. <laughs> And uh, my dad's going to be coming home soon, so hopefully he's not making too much noise. I'll so, uh, right. <clears throat> anyways, uh, so we lost we lost an hour. But anyways, we're getting now we're getting into meat taters. Now here's the, we're, we're into the top five. So, uh, and what I have listed for the top number five of the top five greatest moments in sport history, Christian Leitner stuns Kentucky March 28th, 1992. I remember that. I was watching the game. The buzzer beater in the Elite Eight. One of the most famous shots in March Madness history in all sports. This sent Duke to the Final Four. Duke would eventually beat Michigan in the Fab Five, the Chris Webber technical timeout game. Yep. I love Duke. I mean, I'm an IU fan, but Duke's one of my teams I like watching. But that Fab Five Michigan team and how much I love Chris Webber, and you know we yeah, talk yeah. about how much I, I'm a C-Web guy. Uh, that broke my heart because I want. Well, I mean, God, I was little. I didn't even get to watch it till later years. I didn't watch it happen in real time. But, uh, God, <laughs> you know, uh, I ripped this notes from an Associated Press article here uh, that was written on March 29th, '92. So the day after. It said the 1992 East Regional Final was a battle of basketball royalty. Number two, CD Kentucky represented one of the greatest programs of all time. The owner of five NCAA championship banners at the time, the program was in a drought and on the other side of a three-year of NCAA probation, having not claimed a championship since 78. They were coached by the, at this 87. time. Huh? 87, wasn't it? No. Said 78 was the last time they won a championship. I've been Adolph Rupp. Patino. Patino was there. Hey. Well, Patino was here at this time, but okay. yeah, Rupp would have been. Okay. I'm pretty Seven, sure Rupp, yeah. yeah. The Wildcats coached by Patino and were led by future NBA All-Star Jamal Mashburn. Great player. Great player. They cruised through the opening rounds of the tournament, winning wins over Old Dominion, 
uh, Iowa State, and I believe um, I have a hole in my notes, uh, but I think UMass. <coughs> I want to say it might. I want to. I want to say it might have been UMass. It's. It was UMass or it was Boston College. Somebody listening to these guys will know. UMass is what I'm thinking too. Uh, Top seeded Duke was a blue blood at the time. Uh, That's what I wrote in my notes. Uh, Just really coming to their own. The program had seen great regular season success and deep tournament runs over the course of decades and had just won its first national title the year before in 91 and was eyeing their fifth consecutive Final Four, led by Coach K, Mike Kachetsky. Uh, after they beat Powerhouse UNLV in the semifinal, UNLV, the running Rebels. Yeah, Terry Tarkanian. That's exactly it. Fuck yeah, bro. The guy chewing on the towel all the time. He'd get nervous. <coughs> uh, and then they beat Kansas. They topped Kansas for the 91 championship. Duke entered the 91-92 season with a roster full of future NBA stars, led by senior Christian Leitner. Uh, they were favorite. They, they, um, you know, double digit wins all throughout the 92 tournament. They beat Campbell, Iowa, Seton Hall. Uh, but what Christian Leitner did in that game, the all, he was an all American. He basically ended one of the best college basketball games of all time. Uh, Turnaround jumper at the overtime. I watched that. I bet you I replayed that clip like seven times last night. About the foul line, wasn't it? A little bit. A little bit. Little, Just a little bit behind behind it. it. Yeah, probably 17-foot jumper. Uh, That gave Duke the 104-103 victory because right about the time the ball hit the nets when the buzzer went off. So, there. I mean – Knock Kentucky out. Duke's going to their fifth straight Final Four. It was the second time Leitner had made a last-second shot in overtime to send Duke to the Final Four because he did it the year before. He Christian, being the cocky young kid that he was, was quoted as saying, I can't believe this happened to me twice in a career. Uh, now my laptop wants to fucking freeze up here. He was a bust in the NBA, though, wasn't he? I won't say a bust, but... He didn't. He was. Yeah, I don't want to say a bust. Yeah, it wasn't a bust. I guess. I think busts. You know, Greg Oden. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah, the guy. By the way, we were just supposed to hear our KD episode. Yeah. You know the guy drafted right before KD, Greg Oden. Oden. Greg Oden. Our Indiana own Greg Oden. Yep. Anyways, uh, Mike Chesky was quoted as saying, we beat a very determined and great Kentucky team. It was an unbelievable game where kids made unbelievably great plays. Christian was quoted again as saying, it was a design play. We had a few different options, but me being the best player on the team, I was the first option. I would almost be willing to bet he was smiling when he said that, when he said I'm the best player on the team, just because he knew. Christian Leitner, getting off topic, I want to say something about Christian Leitner. Christian wasn't so much a good basketball player as Christian was an entertainer. He understood that there was an entertainment side to this too. Like you had to play to the crowds and the television audiences, and the, you you know, I think a lot of times he did cockiness about. Yeah, he he did shit to. I, mean, I think he wanted to be the bad guy. Yes, yeah. I wouldn't be surprised if this kid grew up watching 
a little bit of professional wrestling, and I think he just wanted to be the bad guy. Uh, you know me, I'm always going to find a way to work wrestling into every episode. Uh, we will do a wrestling episode oh, one yeah. day. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, anyways, uh, the six foot eleven center who beat Connecticut. He was 6'11". Yeah, he was 6'11". Maybe it does come easy, my notes say. I ripped this off of uh, ESPN.com. Like I said, I don't type out everything. Sometimes I rip stuff and I try to give credit. I don't want to get plagiarism. Uh, maybe it does come easy for the six foot eleven center who beat Kentucky in nineteen ninety or Connecticut, excuse me. He beat Connecticut in nineteen ninety with a jumper at the buzzer on an inbound play that also gave the Blue Devils a regional championship. He is also the NCAA tournament career scoring leader as his 10th point of the game was the 359th of his career to surpass Elvin Hayes of Houston. Duke 31 and two had the ball in a one point deficit with 2.1 seconds left. Sean Woods had given Kentucky a 103 102 lead with two and a half seconds left to go on a one handed drive. He banked in from just inside the foul line. He took a length of the court prep pass from Grand Hill, fake right, spun to his left, and the 15-footer hit nothing but net as the Philadelphia Spectrum Center exploded with joy and relief as the game ended. Leitner said, I was just trying to catch the ball. <clears throat> this, that's all he said. I was just trying to catch the ball. I don't believe that, yeah. I think. Christian said, this seemed to take a lot longer than the Connecticut shot. After I shot it, I didn't see it go in. But I didn't have to. I knew how good I was, and I knew it would go in. There can't be a better feeling than this. Duke's final four runs seemed to end. Duke's final four runs seemed at the end against a team that hadn't been to the NCAA tournament for three years. The last two because of probation. The Wildcats came in at twenty-nine and seven, having played the best game of the season few expected three years ago, when Rick Pitino took over the program. Rick Pitino was quoted as saying, I told the guys, don't let two seconds determine your basketball life because it's worth more than that. He made a great shot with a man on him. Two seconds is a long time, but he's a great player, and he made the shot, so we have to give him credit. Kentucky 29-6 entering the game was a force, but they had not seen anything like Duke when these two powerhouses met. Um, here's a little kind of rundown. Duke looked every bit of the part of the opening 12-point first-half lead. Kentucky cut that lead to 50-45 to at halftime before going ahead 89-87 to with 2.58 remaining in regulation. Kentucky rallied in the second half, and then things got ugly. Duke built back up its lead to nine points. Leitner posted up a Kentucky freshman, Timberlake, underneath the basket. Timberlake was a little hot-headed, Purposely bumped into Leitner as he attempted a layup, forcing a miss, but drawing a foul. Timberlake fell on his back in the paint. Before he could get up, Leitner, the villain. You know, there's been a lot of great Duke villains, the, the these white boy villains. Yeah. Christian Leitner. There's, uh, there's another one. On J.J. Redick. Hurley. Bobby Hurley. Bobby Hurley. I mean, what a point guard. But, uh, <clears throat> you know... The the assholes, Leitner, J.J. Redick, yeah. Grayson Allen yeah. a few years ago. But anyways, with Timberlake on his back on the court, instead of helping him to get up, <laughs> he looks down at him and uh, just stomped on him twice. <laughs> he should have been 
teed up, yeah. maybe flagrant, maybe ejected, but they didn't do it. Oh, Which, uh, yeah, blew people's minds. So, uh, <laughs> uh, I just lost my place here. I'm just, I apologize to all the listeners that's going to hear this tomorrow if they hear it. This whole thing with our equipment and splicing, I'm just, I'm just not in a good spot. I'm not happy. Kirk keeps telling me not to worry, but I try to be a perfectionist on these episodes. I'm pissed. Uh, where am I out of my notes here? So the NCAA tournament is filled with iconic moments, great sport moments, uh, probably top five on our list, but top five in NCAA tournament. Oh yeah. Easy. This, this shot, uh, but Great. no shot in the history of the tournaments probably as big as the overtime bucket in 92 at the Philadelphia Spectrum. Uh, Great game, if I remember right. They're just back and forth. I'm trying to think, was uh, Walter McCarty on that team? He might have been. I know Hurley definitely was. Yeah. Grand Hill would have been. Yeah. I love Grand Hill. Oh, yeah. Here it is. Yeah, Leitner remained in the game to sink a pair of free throws before Kentucky's technical free free throw was awarded. So they did give him a technical. The decision by officials to allow Leitner to continue to play is what set up NCAA history. He should have been ejected. Something should have been. He kicked him, stepped on his leg, kicked him right in the chest. Like, uh, anyways, uh. I got a rundown of the play here. Let's. Uh, um, Kentucky looked to guard junior. Kentucky looked to junior guard Sean Woods with the game on the line. Woods took the inbound pass after a timeout, drove past Duke point guard Bobby Hurley, and sank a layup to put Kentucky up 103 to 102. Duke called a timeout with 2.1 seconds to go. Desperate to keep its hopes of repeat alive with the ball under their own basket, things didn't look good for the Blue Devils. After the timeout, an official handed Duke sophomore Grand Hill the ball on the baseline. And what hindsight has shown is one of the biggest coaching blunders of all time. Hill stood unguarded. Patino chose to keep all five defenders guarding potential pass catchers. So, Hill had an uninstructed look to three-quarter court, aimed the pass at Leitner, threw... Leitner, yeah, it was a great pass. Hell yeah. yeah. Leitner corralled the pinpoint pass to the free throw line, took one dribble to the right, spun to his left for a prayer, and it answered in the biggest shot in NCAA tournament history. History was made. I think I have. (laughs) Yeah. uh, I thought I had the call here. Yeah, uh, I just have the quote. There's the pass to Leitner, puts it up. Good! And then they're rushing the court, yes. so. Uh, I just feel like I've lost my mojo. I'm just so pissed, Kurt. Uh, so basically, you know, running out of steam here. Um, phoning it in. Not really going to phone it in, but just tell the drive's not there. I wasn't, ex- but uh, that was a great moment. Oh, yeah. Um. Tristan Leitner, that whole 92, you know. they. What, they do, you th- t- what do you think personally of Christian Leitner? I mean. I think Christian Leitner gets a bad rap. 
I but like I said, I think he's smart. I think he understood that you you are a pro athlete, but or a college athlete. But I think you have to understand there's an entertainment side to it too. Yeah. So and I think he understood that somebody's got to play the villain, and here's this. And I'm I mean I'm confident in my sexuality. Here's this incredibly handsome, tall, young kid who's just got the the hair the girls all love, and he's got the swagger, and he's like, well, somebody's got to be the son of a bitch. Why not me? <laughs> That's uh, kind of my take on him. Yeah, he, he was a dirty player. He was the guy everybody loved to hate. hate. Yeah, whether you, he was the reason people hated Duke. Yes, yeah, for sure. And even if you were a Duke fan, you hated him too. A lot of guys. So, uh. Another good uh, moment in sports history, for sure. That's right. That's right. So, uh, you want to keep going? Yeah. Let's keep going. God, I hope these episodes make air tomorrow, tonight. So, the number four I have ranked as the number four greatest moment in sports history. This was part of a trifecta, okay? March 18th, 1971, from the world's most famous arena, Madison Square Garden. The fight of the century, Ali and Frazier. Yeah. Uh, few fights in the history of professional boxing have as big an impact as what this did, and these guys did it three times. Uh, but their very first one is probably the best. Uh, it stood the test of time, and it's argued by many that Ali's biggest fight, his best fight, is ironically the one in which he lost because Ali Frazier won, went to Frazier. So uh, they dubbed it the fight of the century. Like I said, uh, boxing fans are accustomed to fight cards being tacked with unrealistic slogans and and stupid phrases to to sell tickets, which is the ultimate goal. But this literally lived up to the fight of the century. Uh, it was the very first time that two undefeated boxers faced off for the heavyweight championship of the world, which was impressive. Impressive. Uh, Ali was striving to reclaim the title that was taken away from him when he refused to be inducted or drafted into the U.S. Armed Forces for Vietnam. Did not know that. Did, Did not, not know, know Ali was... Uh, I, I discovered that last night. It's interesting. Uh, during that four-year absence, though, Frazier rose to the top of the division and claimed the World Heavyweight Championship months before Ali's return. So the table's getting set for an eagerly anticipated matchup. They're kind of, the boxing world, the sports world's kind of leading to like, hey, wonder if we could get these guys together. Everybody can make a little bit of money. Uh, we can get some national exposure for the sport of boxing, which at that time in the 70s, Boxing was still a big draw in sports. I don't... uh, But anyways, uh, at this time, Ali was the owner of the WBA, WBC, and the NYSAC and the ring heavyweight titles with a 29-0 professional record when he halted Zara Foley shortly after his 25th birthday. However, it would turn out to be his last fight for 42 months. Frazier was a highly-rated prospect at, at the time, with a 14-0 record, largely against lower-level opponents in the tri-state area. so But still an undefeated right. fighter, no less. As Ali's kind of shit unfolded away from boxing, and he become a voice of black pride and a voice of racism, and then he kind of 
became an asshole for a while, and then everybody wanted to hate him, and he had all this shit away from the boxing ring going on. You, know, you can see my hands. I'm, I'm motioning them out to the side. So, uh, Frazier's momentum continued to build with all this shit. In March of 1968, Buster Modice in the 11th round out of 15s, he stopped him to win the NYSAC Heavyweight Championship. And then in 1970, Frazier captured the WBA title of Jerry Corey with a four-round retirement finish, as well as the vacant WBC belt in the process to become, quote-unquote, the right. mountain. Ali's not around. So then, <clears throat> given the circumstances, Ali's eventual winning return, also against Jerry Quarry, would turn the chatter of what if by fans into demands for the real deal. Six months passed by, and then finally in 71, the two agreed to meet. They wanted to do it at the biggest place they could do it, which was Madison Square Garden, world's most famous arena. Uh, The end result of that fight, a unanimous decision for Smoking Joe and Ali, who lost his unbeaten record on that night. They would go on to have two more fights, as we'll get to, with Ali eventually winning the rubber match. Uh, Back then, championship fights would still go 15 rounds. And in the first two rounds of the fight of the century, Ali looked great. Looked like Ali was going to take it. Uh, I did some clip watching. Uh, Ali looked strong. But as it continued to go on, Frazier stepped in and decided to take control of the fight. So, in the 15th round, Frazier looked strong in his favor. One judge had it 9-6 to six in rounds. Another judge had it 11-4 and four in rounds. And the third judge had it 8-6. Scored about 8-6 with one even round. Thank you to ESPN for that info. The fight was broadcast live on pay-per-view television in the United States where it set a record with 2.5 million tickets sold in 1971 at closed circus venues grossing 400 uh 400 grossing 45 million dollars uh it set a record with 90,000 tickets sold in London theaters grossing 750,000 dollars combined the fight sold damn near 3 million tickets in the United States and London grossing uh roughly uh, forty-six million dollars, which inflation adjusted to today's money would be roughly three hundred million dollars. Wow! So, so there's that. I'm gonna light me up a cigarette as you've done. I'm just very upset. <laughs> I got a makeshift ashtray over here. My house, my basement. I can smoke in here. Um. So. Damn, it's four o'clock already. So, uh, 300 million people watched it worldwide. It was watched by a record 27 and a half million people in the United Kingdom. I'm telling you all this to let people understand how big this was in 1971. This was literally the epitome of Bach. This was the two greatest. Probably uh, the biggest sport event. One of the biggest sporting events at that that time in history. Not only that year. Yes. Uh, 
let's see. Like I say, 30, 25 pages of notes. And I put all this shit in here because then when I get to talking, I never know what I'm going to cover. So I want to skip something out. So it's good research, but then I don't use half of it. Well, um, I want to talk about this because somewhere in here is where Frazier fights Foreman and then Ali fights Foreman too. Uh, in the, uh, fuck that. I don't want to cover that. Ali would beat George Foreman in the famed rumble in the jungle. Uh, whereas Frazier had lost to Foreman prior. So, um, oh, before that, the two, Ali and Frazier had number two, fight number two on January 28th, 74. So almost three years later, a little over three years, same month, three years later. Uh, in, in the interim though, this is where they both fight Foreman. In between, after their second fight, both man... Each lost once more. Ali lost to Ken Norton in 73 by by the same result. Uh, While Frazier lost his titles in a two-round wipeout to the powerful fists of George Foreman. Dubbed Super Fight 2, Ali tied the score with Frazier 1-1 via 12-round unanimous decision once again at the world's most famous arena, Madison Square Garden. Ali would would dethrone King George Foreman, Rumble in the Jungle, then after three successful defenses, the money was right. Because even though these guys are getting up there in their careers a little bit, it's still, as an athlete, you still care about the money. Right. It's always going to be about the money. So they do the Thrill in Manila. Thrill in Manila. Uh, Ali would win the rubber match, so he'd win two straight against Frazier. Uh, the referee stopped the bout at the end of the 14th round. What's funny about this, and uh, this, I copy and paste it off the web, and I'm just going to read this real quick here. Uh, Ali refused to publicly admit defeat after the first fight with Frazier and sought to define the outcome in the public's mind as a white man's decision. So... Yeah, so um, Frazier lost the title 22 months later when he was knocked out by Foreman, uh, 73 in Kingston, Jamaica. Ali split two bouts with Ken Norton in 73. Ali Frazier, two in January 74. We already covered that. Ali went to defeat Frazier in their third bout. By the time the rematch, the social climate in America had settled down with the Vietnam War having ended in 73. Many dismissed the notion that Ali was a traitor and he was a draft dodger, and they accepted him as their heavyweight champion. He was once again loved. People who had supported Frazier on political and racial grounds in the first bout so they could see Ali get beat were less effusive and abandoned him pretty much after he lost the championship. With the same social divide, with the unknown of whether Ali could ever regain enough of his former greatness to dominate, uh, come on, come on. Their second and third fights would attain would not attain the unprecedented height of the first one. Um, so, this is a good quote here. Um, boxing historian Burt Sugar, 
guy, well, I know you don't know him, but I've heard his name mentioned before. After their first fight, he had said Ali's image and myth and name and reputation grew where Joe was to suffer. The funny thing about the first fight between Ali and Frazier is this. The winner that night, Joe Frazier, ultimately became the loser. And the loser that night, Muhammad Ali, ultimately ended up becoming the winner. So, I know that was a long-winded, but I felt it was important to include that. I believe it's one of the greatest moments in sports history. And this one is where I'm going to need you to come alive because... I'm just going to shut it down here on this one and move straight to the next one. Just try to get through this episode. I had high hopes for it and just this whole technical aspects got me so... I know you roll your eyes every time I say it. Well, I mean, things happen. I mean, we're new new to this yet. This is where uh, you're going to come alive. The number three greatest moments in sports history. October 15th, 1988. You know what that is? Oh, yeah. What is it? Uh, Kirk Gibson. Walk-off homer. Game one. Game one. World Series. Pro- propelled him in that series to victory, I feel. I'm, I'm just going to let you talk about it for uh, a minute. On one leg. One leg. Actually had two bad wheels, I guess. Uh, I'm not sure what the, exactly what the injury was. I pulled muscle or hamstring. I think it was a hammy. Hamstring. Uh, Dennis Eckersley shut everybody down that year. Reliever for the A's. Closer. O2 in the count, right off the bat, okay, right immediately. Right. And uh, fouled a couple good pitches off, and uh, sure enough, a slider out over the plate. and uh, Yanked it into the bleachers in right field. Uh, pandemonium started. Uh, of course, <laughs> nobody gave the Dodgers a chance that series, I don't think. I mean, they were the total, total underdog. Was that the Smash Brothers? Yes, uh, Conseco, McGuire, yeah, Dave Henderson, Ricky Henderson. Holy crap. I mean, they had a star-studded lineup. Uh, Terry Steinbeck was a catcher. Dave Stewart on the mound. So I got listed in my notes. I started this when I put the title in, and then the next thing I say, this is technically a play, but it's still a great sports moment, and sometimes great sports moments include fantastic plays. This is right where it belongs in the top three moments of sports history. Uh, A two-run walk-off homer in the bottom of the ninth to win game one of the World Series. These are the things kids dream about while playing baseball in their backyards, and Kirk Gibson made it a reality on October 15th, 88, in Dodger Stadium in Los Angeles. I have listed in my notes, I wrote, Gibson was initially held out of the Los Angeles Dodgers lineup with injuries to both legs. Good call, Kirk. I thought it was. Uh... But he was being called upon to pinch hit in the bottom of the ninth inning with two outs. He hit a two-run walk-off homer against Dennis Eckersley. The home run won the game by the Dodgers for the Dodgers by a score of five to four. Um, here you go. Winning the National League West division, the Dodgers were considered the underdogs throughout the '88 postseason. First to the New York Mets in the NL Championship, and then the Athletics in the World Series. Gibson who was not expected to play due to injuries sustained in the NLCS, was surprisingly inserted as a pitch hitter with the Dodgers trailing 4-3 to three with two outs in the bottom of the ninth and a tying run at first base. Gibson's home run, his only played appearance of the entire World Series, helped the Dodgers defeat the Athletics four games to one, securing their sixth World Series title. 
great moment. Great moment. You're Dodge, you bleed oh, yeah. Dodger Blue, bleed don't Dodger you? Dodger Blue, yes. Tommy Lewis Order. Uh, in 1995, this was voted the greatest moment in L.A. sports history in a widely taken poll, which, you know, the internet was really in its infancy then. Uh, the play has become legendary in baseball, though, and in the sports world. Many images associated with the home run, particularly Gibson pumping his fist while circling oh, yeah. the bases, are often shown <laughs> in classic highlight reels, accompanied by a play-by-play from, in my opinion... The greatest broadcaster Vin, ever. Vin Scully. Vin Scully. Uh, sorry, and Harry. She Curry. is out of here. Yeah. Uh, what I didn't know, <clears throat> I mean, 88's the year after I was born. What I didn't know, even with all my love of baseball, and I just learned this last night, Gibson didn't become a Dodger until the free agency period uh, in eight, the 88 offseason. Gibson played the previous nine seasons with the Tigers. Winning a World Series with them in '84, yes. I knew he was yep. a World Series yep. champion. Sparky Anderson and the boys. Uh, he became the Dodgers' leader both on and off the field. Uh, that season, he led the team with 25 homers and a was he batting 290, 290 yeah, batting a, average. Good year, yeah. 31 stolen bases. Um. So. This is uh, something you'll like. One reason why the Dodgers were considered underdogs throughout the postseason was that they did not finish the regular season ranked in the top five of any major offensive statistical category. They were strengthened, though, by an excellent starting rotation led uh, by... Oral Hershiser. Hershiser and backed up by Belcher, yeah. Tudor... John and, Tudor, yeah. And Tim Leary. Did not know... I can't. We got about Tim Leary. They had an outstanding bullpen that included Jay Howell, Jesse Orcosco, Orosco, Orosco, and yep. Alejandro Pena. Pena. Yep. Uh, but instead of sending Anderson to the plate, Lasorda inserted Gibson as his pitch hitter. Vin Scully comments, and look who's coming up to the plate. <laughs> Gibson fouled off two pitches right off the bat. Behind oh, two. two. Yep. There you go. Uh, he then swung clumsily and dribbled the ensuing pitch foul down the first baseline, which seemed to confirm his inability to swing with any authority. Gibson took an outside pitch, called a ball by home plate umpire Doug Harvey, fouled off a pitch, then took another outside pitch to work to a 2-2 count. On the seventh pitch of the at-bat, another ball, making it a full count, Davis stole second yes, base. Yeah, Mike Davis took second, yeah. I remember that. So he's, he's running. He's a runner in scoring position now, right? I mean, basically, just he wasn't even trying to hit a home run. He said, "I, I don't." He was trying to drive that tying run in, right? And uh, like I say, Eckersley hung a, hung a slider. Hit down. Eckersley had been lights out all year on uh, as far as closing games out, and I doubt if he hung three pitches like that. Uh, the whole season, you know, just so happens he hung a slider. And as soon as he hit it, you can see Eckersley's face. It, I mean, wow. What a, what a, what a moment. Yeah. I got, I, I, just, just being a Dodgers fan, I mean. It, I got I got a little Eckersley comment for you here in a minute. Uh, on the seventh pitch, oh, we already read that. Uh, Gibson would later recount 
that prior to the series, Dodger scout Mel uh, Mel Didier had provided a report on Eckersley, which claimed that on a three-two count against a left-handed hitter, one could absolutely be certain he would throw a backdoor slider. Yes. He hung, he hung it over the plate. I mean, Gibson said that when the count reached three two, he stepped out of his batter's box, and in his mind, he could remember that conversation. And thus, when Eckersley did in fact throw the backdoor slider, it was exactly the pitch Gibson was expecting. Swinging almost entirely with his upper body, he hit the pitch over the right field fence and limped around the bases. So now, let me scroll down here. So I have some quotes here. Basically, these are the transcripts of the calls from Don Drysdale, Vin Scully, and Jack Buck. Um, and I don't know. Don Drysdale, this is his exact transcripted quote from the whole at bat. Well, the crowd is on its feet. If there was ever a preface to Casey at the bat, it would have to be the ninth inning. Two out, the tying run aboard, the winning run at the plate, and Kirk Gibson standing at the plate. Gibson a deep sigh, regripping the bat. The shoulders just shrugged. Now goes to the top of the helmet as he always does. Steps in with that left foot. Eckersley working out of the stretch. Here's the 3-2 pitch. A drive hit to right field. Way back. This ball is gone. And then it says there's a few minutes delay, and he goes, this crowd will not stop. They can't believe this is the ending. And this time, Mighty Casey did not strike out. They wouldn't leave. The they fans, wouldn't leave the, the fan, fucking stadium. The, the fans would not leave. So, Vin Scully, high fly ball into right field. She, hey, hey, it, hey. it is gone. <laughs> uh... So, and then Jack Buck had a, a famous call. The Dodgers have won the game 5-4. to four. I don't believe what I just saw. I don't believe what I just saw. Is this really happening, Bill? <laughs> so, uh, what makes this all the better is, for those of you that remember this or don't remember it, hop on the YouTube machine. When you see shots, you see taillights leaving the stadium. And one has to believe these are Dodgers fans pissed off and they're leaving because the game's over. And they just missed one of the greatest moments in sports history. So. Great moment. Yes. (laughs) Tremendous. Tremendous. I knew it was going to make you happy. Kirk Gibson. Kirk Gibson. Uh. That's all you ever hear. Kirk Gibson. I mean, uh, I liked his style of play, too. I mean, hustle, gritted out, just tough guy. I mean. You bleed Dodger Blue, buddy. Oh, yeah, I do, for sure. So, here we are, top two. Pretty good list so far. Oh, yeah, definitely. 19, uh, okay, number two. February 22nd, 1980, The Miracle on Ice. Yes. Controversy indeed. A lot of people's probably going to put this as number one. It's a patriotic thing, and as right as they may be, here we're putting it too, just because of the impact that number one had. Uh, The Miracle on Ice, the 1980 Winter Olympics, Lake Placid, New York. It was between the United States and Soviet Union. Uh, Hockey tournament. 
The Soviet Union was a four-time defending gold medalist, heavily favored. Heavily favored. And the United States upset him four to three. The Soviet Union had won the gold medal prior to this in five of the six previous Winter Olympics. They were the favorites to win once again, and Russian bastards love their hockey. (laughs) So, uh, I didn't write a whole lot about this because this is a moment that everybody remembers, and I honestly didn't put that much in there about it because I feel like sometime down the road, maybe we might make a full episode out of this. Yeah, it'd be a good episode. Um. Because just everywhere you looked, if this moment isn't ranked number one in sports history, no matter where you go in your Google machine, it's in the top five. Oh, yeah. So I don't need to say a whole lot about it. Uh, just a Cliff Notes version. Uh, ABC requested this game be rescheduled from 5 p.m. Eastern Standard Time to 8 p.m. so it could be broadcast live in prime time. However, the International Hockey Federation declined the request after the Soviets complained that it would be unfair to cause the game to air at 4 a.m. in Moscow instead of 1 a.m. So as a result, they kept it the same and they just aired it on a tape delay. So it aired at 8 p.m. or whenever. Uh, Many people to this day still believe that this game was aired live when it wasn't. And thank God you didn't have social media back then. I want to spoil it for everybody. Uh, 8,500 people packed into this arena. U.S. flags waving everywhere. USA. USA. Al Michaels with the famous call, Do you believe in miracles? Uh, First period, U.S. fell behind early. Uh, They tied the score with one second left to go in the first period. Ended 2-2. Second period, Soviets led three to two. Third period, uh, the puck, Mark Johnson with the amazing shot that went under Michigan and into the net at the 839 mark, which as the power play was ending to tie the game at three. Uh, then the goal gave the USA a 4-3 lead with 10 minutes remaining to play. Uh... Basically, just, you know, five seconds left to go in the game. Al Michaels, do you believe in miracles? Yes. And the infamous Sports Illustrated cover shot that we've all seen, the famous pitcher, or, yeah, the famous pitcher. March 3rd, 1980 cover of Sports Illustrated, do you believe in miracles? There it is. Um, Let that sink in a second. The Soviet hockey team, led by an iron curtain of goaltender named Vladi Tretiak, I never say his last name. Was clear favorite to bring home the gold, uh, and unfortunately they wasn't. They had beat the USSR, beat the United States 10-3 to in an exhibition game at Madison Square Garden weeks prior. Um, of course, they ended up having to play one more game to actually win the Olympic gold medals, right. which they did. Right. Uh, I had it in my notes who they played, and I – I don't remember now. Finland, maybe? I think it was Finland. It was Finland, yeah. Which they won 4-2. to two. Uh, So, now would be the time when we get to number one. and But for dramatic effect, we're going to tease it 
briefly. Um, we're still recording. Still got my fucking error there. But uh, we're gonna have a few honorable mentions. Yeah. Uh, here before we give away the greatest moment in sports history, just because I think that's what we need to do, just to kind of draw it out. So honorable mention, and there's there's gonna be four of them. Um, instead of five, because I think there shouldn't be a number one honorable mention. I think number one should be reserved for the number number one. one. So number four or five, however you want to count it would be the Chicago Cubs ending their 108 year world series drought on November 2nd, 2016. Not going to get too much into this because we're going to do where we'll spend in depth on that season. Uh, but basically they're playing against the Indians, the Cleveland Indians, and that was at the time where both these teams were in some serious droughts. Yes. So somebody was going to end yes. it. I don't think anybody thought it would be the Cubs. It turned out to be a great series, too. I mean, they did, Game yes, 7. Yes. Um, all the credit to this needs to go to GM Theo Epstein and his rebuilding of the, the franchise and what they'd done in weeks prior. Um. So, uh, I don't know if I really got anything important to say about that, Kurt. I just we'll that, save it for another. Episode. The air is just kind of out of our sails. This crap today. Uh, number four, honorable mention. Not going to get into a lot about this either, just because uh, that's going to be an episode I want to cover too. And you know, I had to squeeze up, find a way to squeeze LeBron into a oh, conversation. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. Uh, LeBron brings the title back to Cleveland 2016. Uh, Arguably one of the top ten greatest plays in NBA Finals history. The block at the top of the rim of Andre (laughs) Iguodala. Uh, But they won 93-89 game seven. The first team to ever come back from being down 3-1. The finals, uh, it was the first ever title for the Cavs. It was the first championship for the city of Cleveland in any sport since 64. LeBron left, goes to Miami, brings a couple titles to Miami, comes back home, fulfills his promise, and they forget they ever hated him for leaving yeah, in the first yeah, place. Yeah. So um, that will be covered at length. Um, this one here too, honorable mention number three, the drive. 86 AFC Championship, January 11th, 87. Uh, five minutes and two seconds. Elway takes the team 98 yards and 15 plays to tie the game with 30 second, 37 seconds left in regulation. Denver would go on to win the game in overtime with a 33-yard field goal, pulling off a 23-20 win over the Cleveland Browns, effectively breaking Bernie Kosar's heart. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Bernie Kosar. Uh and I had a whole rundown list of each plays, and I'm just going to blow through it. Just <laughs> This really sucked today, man. It really did. Uh, so, and then we go to honorable mention number two. This one we will talk about for a few minutes. Uh, <clears throat> April 11th, 1947, Jackie Robinson gets called up to the majors. Yeah, how can you leave this out? I mean, yeah, it's got to be in it. It's right. got to be in the mansions, mansions for sure. Uh, broke the color barrier. Uh, I've got that written. That's one of the first things I got. Uh, 
broke racial barriers, tried to snuff out racism, changed the world. Jackie Robinson signed a major league contract with the Dodgers on October 30th, 1945. Uh, and then he gets called up in 47. Uh, I don't really... I hear noises upstairs. Yeah. I think that's Papa Bear home. Anyways... Um, basically what I have in my notes here for this was that he gets called up and he's immediately met with people that saying he shouldn't be in the white man's league. Um, Dodger players insulted him that would rather sit with him. Uh, manager Leo DeRocher. DeRocher, yeah. Inform the team, I don't care if this guy's yellow or black or has stripes like a zebra. I'm the manager of this team. I say he plays. What's more, I say I, he can make us all rich, and if any of you cannot use the money, I can see every one of you will be fucking traded away. <laughs> so, basically, and then I just have – I run down a whole list of his first season here and just the, the racial slurs used against him and everything. And, uh, and what he did and the champion he was and the player he was and – you know, if I wasn't so upset about today, I would continue to cover it, but we're just gonna pass it away. And then, uh, this is what we're here for. We'll get through the number one moment here and then we'll wrap it up. Uh, New York, New York, North Carolina state upsets Houston, April 4th, 1983. Uh, we pull no punches. Our show, our rules. To us, this is the greatest moment in sports history. Uh, Jimmy V. Jimmy V. Yeah, man. Jim Valvano. Uh, Houston, top-ranked Houston, pie slam jamma Oh, yeah. Drexler. Elijah one. I love Clyde Drexler. Who is their coach? Uh, guy... Was it Guy Lewis? Yep, there you go. That's right. Yeah, it's in my notes. Guy Lewis. Um, Had run the table that year, I think. They were they were top seeded. Um, were they undefeated? Um, I think I've got it down here somewhere. I'll get to it. Uh, NC State was six seeded. Uh, Let's see. Um, Lorenzo Charles stuffing Derek Wittenberg's missed 30-footer for the 54-52 to win. Uh, There's Jim Valvano running around searching for someone to hug after (laughs) just the latest tournament nail-biter for the cardiac pack. Uh, You're talking about it gives fans hope. Man, it gives us hope every day that if you don't give up, anything could happen, said Kozell McQueen, who had 12 rebounds against Houston. Uh, Retired BYU coach Dave Rose, a captain on that high-flying Houston team, said the pain faded, but only weeks later, memories of missed free throws and a blown second-half lead stick with him and haunt him to this very day. What also added to this significance was Vivano's inspirational story, which ultimately aided to the creation of the Jimmy V Foundation for Cancer Research before his death from the disease in April of 93, which is another reason we put this in there, just because of 
you know, we shit on the ESPYs all the time, but because there's not a really awards, but his speech at the ESPYs, so. Um, Pie Slamma Jamma. I have it written in here somewhere where they were ranked in Houston Cougars. Well, I thought I did, but I guess I didn't. North Carolina State beat Pepperdine 69 to 67. They beat UNLV 71 to 70. Beat Utah 75 to 56. And beat Virginia 63 to 62. Man, these were nail biters. Yes, yeah, for sure. Uh, and then in the final four, they beat Virginia 67 to 60. Houston beat Maryland 60 to 50. Memphis seventy to sixty three, Villanova eighty nine to seventy one, and then they beat Louisville in the final four ninety four to eighty one. Yes. Uh, Denny Crum. Denny Crum. Louisville. Uh, NC State was leading in halftime at thirty three twenty five. Houston was hampered by foul trouble with Clyde Drexler. Terry Gannon drew a controversial charging call against Drexler. That put him at four to leave him one foul away from disqualification. Uh, Olajuwon was on the bench. Head coach Guy Lewis decided that in order to protect the lead and Olajuwon's health, the Cougars slowed the game down. Uh, the score is even at 52 in the final two minutes. That would be the last Houston possession. Valvano called for his players to back off and let freshman guard Alvin Franklin. Yep. Bring the ball up court and stand by while Houston passed the ball before they committed their foul. Valvino's strategy was to foul Franklin once he got the ball back, and Wittenberg did exactly that with 105 left to go. Um, they tried to keep the ball moving as soon as they inbounded the pass. Um, yeah. My notes get kind of jotty after this uh, the final two seconds ticked off the clock before Houston can inbound the ball and with that the game ended with the Wolfpack as the national champions uh, Billy Packer and Billy Packer Brent Musburger Billy Packer they've got to drive to the basket it's down to seven seconds uh, you can see the time Wittenberg oh that's a long ways it's there Oh, and they're like oh they want it on the dunk yes Gary Bender and Billy Packer. Lorenzo Charles, a role player. A great role player. A great role player, yes. I was watching that live at the time. Almost made me a... I was a Wolfpack fan for a little bit after that happened. I'm a Hoosier fan, hands down. But right. I mean, you just had to like that story. I mean, I... I mean, Houston ran run the table that year. I mean, it was dominating. Hard to do. Oh, yeah, dominating. Well, the air's been sucked out of my sandals on this episode. So, well, there, there we have it. The uh, I'll, we, even, I'll even give the rundown we here. Welcome, uh, we welcome, if anybody thinks it's any different, well, you know, feel free so, to say so. So, to give you guys a review before we get the hell out of here, and I'm actually excited to get out of here for once. Normally, I want to keep 
talking all night with Kurt, but the top 10 greatest moments in sports history, Earnhardt's Daytona 500 win, UMBC becomes the first 16 seed to take out a one seed when they beat Virginia. The 72 Dolphins are perfect. Babe Ruth sold to the Yankees for $100,000, the curse of the Bambino. Jesse Owens with his middle finger to Hitler at the 36 Olympics. <laughs> Christian Leitner's buzzer beater. Number four, the fight of the century. Ali versus Frazier won. Number three, Kirk Gibson's walk-off home run in the 88 Game 1 World Series. Number two, the U.S. hockey team, Miracle on Ice. USA. Honorable mentions. USA. Cubs 108-year drought. Honorable mention four, LeBron wins one for Cleveland. Honorable mention three, the drive with John Elway. And honorable mention two, Jackie Robinson's debut, which ends us with the greatest moment in, in sports history. 1983, North Carolina State's win over Houston in the NC title game. So, yeah. Wait, I might have applause here. All right, there we go. It'll lock back up on me in a minute. I don't know what's going on. I'm going to have to check out my equipment. I'm not very happy. So, oh, next week, so I can start researching this week. Um, we've done a lot of episodes so far. We've done some basketball, done some baseball, done some football, done some golf. We've done a mix of things. So, now we have to pick something else. What do you feel like talking about? Anything? Well, there's always a chance we do a what if. Maybe. Maybe. We'll, we'll see. We'll just table that as maybe, and then maybe I'll finish these notes for KD. Let's table it maybe. In the, let's pick a backup option, though, in case. Um... I don't really know what I want to talk. You know what? Let's cover our first World Series episode. You want to? Yeah. Yeah. I'm down to talk about anything sports. I want to do a World Series episode. Sounds good to me. Um, why don't we do... Let's do the 85 World Series. Yeah. Royals-Cardinals. Royals-Cardinals. Brett Saberhagen. I-70 series. Brett Saberhagen. I guess that's what it was. That's that's Missouri with both of them. Yeah. I-70. That's what they called it. So we'll we'll do that. Um, I'm going to plug our other sponsor, Main Street Designs, LLC, and Jasper. They're a laser printing and engraving business. They can do anything you want you want to do um like them on facebook give them a call jordan or jan uh they'll hook you guys up and once again i want to apologize to everybody when you hear this if you hear it if it makes tape uh some days things just don't go the way they should me and kurt had a lot of technical difficulties here i'm gonna have to see what's going on with the equipment uh basically we're i'm gonna have to splice the first recording with this one and uh, go from there. So hopefully it turns out okay. But uh, there you have it. The top 10 greatest moments in sports history. Um, and now we're set to cover the 85 World Series next week. Yeah, sounds like fun.
So, uh, well, hopefully this sounds good. So, for Kurt Kelly, I can't even play our outro music. My sound pad's locked up. Uh, we'll figure right it error. out. We'll figure so, it out. So, we'll just go ahead and uh, end it right here. So, uh, thanks a lot, guys, for your support, the few people out there. And uh, we will talk to you guys next week. It's not even shutting off. I don't know. I'm not even I'm serious. I'm going to wait till this error goes off. I can turn our mic. I can't even turn our mics off. So I have to sit here and wait and watch this so I can pop it off here in just a second. Till we are still live. Wieners and buttholes. <laughs> there it goes. All right, guys, one more time. I just want to jump in here. The quality on this particular part you're hearing right now is not the greatest because I'm not using any of my equipment. I am literally just uh, talking through the mic in my laptop. Again, I want to apologize for today's episode. I had a lot of high hopes. I was excited about it. I wanted to present it better, present it longer. And then we ran into all these recording issues and I tried to work through it and, and I just couldn't. And we've put out a bunch of really good episodes, but this one's not the greatest and uh i'm still gonna go ahead and put the episode out so um but i want to apologize again for the shoddy work and you know having to splice audio together and everything and uh i want to apologize so um i hope this doesn't deter the few people that do listen from not listening anymore uh, as Kurt told me everybody has a bad day and we're learning curve you know we're six seven episodes in all together uh, so we're working through it but again I want to apologize for the quality here and uh, yeah so hopefully next week's episode will be better uh, join us when we cover the 1985 World Series the I-70 series between Kansas City Royals and the St. Louis Cardinals. And uh, for my co-host, Kurt Kelly, who at 10 o'clock at night is probably at home in bed. I am uh, Jared Atkins, and we'll see you guys next time on Steel Toes and Scoreboards. <laughs>